evening to you. The book of Isaiah, chapter 38 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come this evening to Isaiah chapter 38. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you might be fairly lost without a, a Bible on a Sunday night with us. So there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles and mark to where we're going to be studying tonight. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. We noticed last week when we were together that Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 constitute a bridge between the two major divisions of the book of Isaiah. And essentially it, it is God wrapping up the first part the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, where the focus is mostly upon Assyria, God using Assyria as an instrument of discipline or judgment against the rebellion and, and the disobedience of the southern kingdom of Judah, and then Assyria being taken care of and kind of wiped out of the way. The focus of the second half of the book then moves to Babylon, and we'll see that tonight. The country or the empire that was going to be used by God to chasten the southern kingdom of Judah uh, because of, of their sin and ultimately take them into captivity. And so as we finished last week in uh, chapter 37, God destroys this great Assyrian army uh, with a miracle of his Holy Spirit by way of an angel. And then we pick the account up now in chapter uh, 38. And in those days, Hezekiah, the king of Judah at the time, he was sick and he was near death. So he has a terminal disease. He has some kind of an illness that he is not only sick, but he is uh, critically and he is seriously ill. So this is kind of a crisis in his life. He's already faced the crisis of um, the, or, or actually the, in terms of chronology, Chapter 38 and the events that are found in here happened before the Assyrian uh, invasion. Sometimes God isn't that concerned about chronology as he's making uh, particular lessons known. But here he is. He's, he's a part of his life in this season in his life. He is facing this great Assyrian invasion. And yet at the same time, he is facing this great uh, personal and physical a disease that he has, maybe even a cancer of some kind, a melanoma, some kind of a skin cancer, something that is creating an ulcer in his body, uh, as we'll read about at the end of the chapter. So he's really facing a lot. I mean, he's facing a lot on a national level, also facing a lot on an individual level. Great, uh, gigantic trials. Here is his personal trial. He is sick and near unto death. Then as if the news couldn't get any worse, at least humanly speaking or earthly speaking, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him with a word from the Lord, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. In other words, you're not going to survive this particular disease and uh, uh, illness that you have, uh, you are going to die and enter into eternity now. And so make the necessary preparations that are required both as a father and as a husband and as a king and so forth that are necessary for all of that to happen. And that's the word that comes to him. Now that news was uh, devastating to Hezekiah, as you might imagine. There's something about even someone who has 
a disease that they know is terminal. They've been diagnosed with congestive heart failure or some other disease that, humanly speaking, is going to take their life. Of course, there's all manner of cancers that uh, people are diagnosed with, and, and they're faced with this very same thing. But no matter what the disease might be, as long as you're alive, there is hope. There's the hope that a miracle could happen. God could heal me. This could turn around. Or maybe just something in the way that God has made my body and there'll be something that occurs, some whatever, and my body's immune system will kick in and begin to turn this thing around. So as long as, even as low as people can go with these kind of diseases, there's always that hope that something might happen. This might not be the end. Hope is alive. With this message from God to Hezekiah, the door slams. At that particular point, all of his hope is gone. He realizes now, I'm going to die. It is uh, comparable to when they say today, we're bringing hospice in. Everybody automatically realizes, okay, if... Um, unless there's a miracle here, this person is going to, if they're a Christian, headed to home uh, soon, you know. And so this was kind of the equivalent of that. God's saying, nope, you're not going to survive this illness. Go ahead and take care of uh, business, prepare for death. And, of course, the only single great preparation for death is faith in Christ. And, and uh, so this is the news that he gets Hezekiah, devastated by the news, he then turned his face toward the wall and he prayed to the Lord. So some people look at this and they say, well, he's just a big baby and a moper and he turns to the Lord and now he's going to whine and pray to God instead of taking it like a man. Mm, I doubt that that kind of a person has been on their deathbed before and then would uh, preach such a sermon or be faced with the kind of illness that Hezekiah is. He's a king. Uh, He's surrounded by attendants. Isaiah brings the message in. He doesn't dismiss all of these people that are attending to him. He receives the news, and he wants privacy. And the only privacy that he can receive in the environment that he has is to simply turn away from all of the people that are in that room to the wall and to begin now to process this with God. And his first response, and it's very commendable, is he begins now to pray uh, to the Lord. And he says to the Lord, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And then Hezekiah, he began to weep bitterly. So this confuses him. Hezekiah is at this point a relatively young man, even in ancient terms. He's 39 years old. If you know the rest of the story, God extends his life for 15 years. We know from the biblical account, historically, that he lives to the age of 54 and dies. So he's 39 years old when this news hits. And the first thing that so often enters into the mind of someone who has walked with God, they love God, they've been obedient to God. Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings that Judah ever had. I mean, he, he slipped in, you know, in trying to pay off the Assyrians with, you know, wealth from the temple and from Jerusalem. And he's going to slip a little bit here in chapter 39. But these are 
relatively, they're significant in their own way, but they're relatively small things in the light of decades of faithful service to God. His name is gold in Jewish history. And so he goes to God with the question that comes to the mind of everyone that's in that kind of a place and say, God, why are you taking me out so early? Why are you taking me out so young? I've, why, you know, is, is David speaks in, in the Psalm 73 talking about, you know, why do the wicked live so long? Why are there so many people that, you know, they... Uh, smoke a carton of cigarettes and they uh, drink a bottle of bourbon every day and they live to 118. What's going on here? And they abuse every person around them. And and then here I am. I've given you my life and all of this and and and, and I'm going to die so young. And so he's he's trying to process all of this uh, news that is going on. He feels like I'm I'm just too young to die. And all of this hits him so hard and he just begins uh, to weep bitterly. Again, up to now there was hope. Now there's no hope in his situation. Now, Hezekiah is probably weeping and without a doubt with considerable uh, consideration being given to himself. Uh, Why do the the good die so young? As the old saying in the old song goes, he's dealing with that. But there's a couple of other things that are going on in Hezekiah's mind with this uh, news of the fact that he's going to die. Number one, he has no son, and he's acutely aware of that. He has no son through whom to make the king... uh, make a king after him. In other words, the bloodline uh, through the uh, bloodline of David is king, the bloodline that was going to bring the Messiah into the world. He looks at it and he says, that's going to be interrupted unless if I die, I don't have a son to follow me. That might have been in his thinking as he's going to ask for God to spare his life and extend his life. Probably the, the single greatest thing other than self-preservation, which is very real, that he's dealing with is that this account does occur immediately before this invasion by Assyria. And he's essentially asking God for a little bit more time to live in order to fulfill his role as king while the southern kingdom of Judah was facing this threat of Assyria. In other words, here we are, Lord, and we're facing the biggest threat that we've ever faced before. It's not a time for a transition related to a king. Would you allow me to continue in this role until we get on the other side of this? And then go ahead and do with my life as uh, you see fit. The word of the Lord then came to Isaiah as following his prayer, to the Lord, and God spoke uh, through Isaiah and said to, to him, spoke to him and said, Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, and surely I will add to your days 15 years. And so God answers Hezekiah's prayer. He extends his life 15 years. And so 15 years, let's say you're, you know, 80 years old and God extends your life 15 years. Hey, that's a big deal. But I mean, you can't taste your food anymore. You can't hear the television. I mean, everybody hears your television more next door than you hear it in your room and all. Listen, I know all about it and I'm not even 
95 years old. But it's another thing to tell someone who's 39 years old, I'm adding 15 years to your life. So this was significant news. It's interesting in terms of the New Testament, in terms of healing for us as it relates to uh, us as Christians, the Bible teaches that sometimes James writes and says, sometimes we have not because we ask not. And this whole passage there would be the kind of wondering. If he never prayed, he never asked, he never asked even for God, his grace of his healing within his life, would God have extended his life or not? We'll never know. We don't have to know. He asked for it, and God answered that prayer. In James chapter 5, God says, If anyone is any among you sick, Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So no Christian ever wants to get sick and then fail to be anointed with oil by the elders of the church that they attend, to pray the prayer of faith asking God for healing, Because God tells us to do that in the book of James chapter 5. And if we don't do that, then we'll never know whether he would heal us or not. Conversely, if I am anointed with oil by the elders of the leaders of the church and we ask for God's gift of healing in my life or in your life, and then God does not extend that gift of healing into our lives, then we know that God has a different plan for our lives. But we'll at least know that it isn't because we failed to sin or to to pray and to ask the Lord uh, for that uh, healing. And so God gives him the promise of 15 additional years. And then on top of that, and this is why in verse 6 we believe that, or I believe that he was actually asking for his life to be extended for the sake of the city and the Assyrian attack. God said, I will deliver you. So this seems to be in response to prayer as well. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city. And then God gives him a sign that this miracle has been performed. And so the Lord said, this is the sign to you uh, from, which the, from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. And God gives him a sign. Now, today what happens if uh, God heals us? He gives us a miracle of a gift of healing. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And God does that all of the time. So if God heals us of our disease, then today what we do in order to get proof or evidence of it is we go in and the doctor orders a a PET scan or an MRI or a CT scan, and then it shows uh, the disease is gone or the affliction is, is healed. It's not there anymore. But in those days, they didn't have MRIs and uh, PET scans and CT scans. And so uh, it, it appears from the very last verse here in uh, verse 22, Hezekiah had said to the Lord, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord, that I'm going to survive this illness, be healed, and continue my reign? So he's asking God for a sign, and God gives him this sign. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz. I'll bring that 
that sundial back 10 degrees, and so the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Now, here's a miracle that could take place a couple of different ways. It could be that God took time and brought it to a stop and actually ran it back 10 degrees somewhere in human history as a miracle to confirm this uh, miracle of healing that he had accomplished in Hezekiah's life. Or it could be just a very localized miracle. Here is a sundial that is uh, there in the, uh, uh, the sundial of, of Ahaz there. It's evidently a part of, the, of his, uh, Hezekiah's throne area or uh, one of the courtyards or something like that. And God just does a localized miracle where he causes the shadow to go back. Whichever way he did it, and it's effortless for him to do it either way, I'm inclined to believe that it was a local thing that he did. Basically what he was communicating to Hezekiah is, I'm turning back the clock related to your life. That's, that's what the miracle has to do, and that's what he wanted to communicate to him. Here's a miracle to let you know. I've turned your clock back 15 years, and, and you're going to have that added uh, to your life. By whatever means God did that, When you create the heavens and the earth with a word, (laughs) you can do the miracles any old way that you want. In verse 9, Hezekiah, as a result of this great miracle in his life, he puts together this song of thanksgiving to God. And uh, it's quite a revelation, and it's very interesting reading, especially if uh, you have had been diagnosed with some kind of a disease or healed of a disease or you know someone that's in that condition. The emotion is very, very recognizable. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So he uh, here's his, his song of thanksgiving. He said, I said, in the prime of my life, and so he was crying out to the Lord, God, you're taking me out in my prime. Again, I'm too young to die. In the prime of life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol, that is, to die and and go into Hades, the waiting place, which, you know, was the Old Testament kind of waiting for Jesus to come and give us access into heaven. He cried out to the Lord, I'm deprived of the remainder of my years. Again, Lord, you're cutting my life short. I'm only 39 years old. I've been uh, a good boy, and, and, uh, you know, I... and, you know, what are you doing here? And then he says, uh, said uh, to the Lord, I, and, and so I said, uh, I shall not see Yah. And, and in this, in verse 11, he starts to think about, all right, and this is before he's healed, I'm going to die. And he begins to think about what he's going to miss. And everybody that's been in this position, man, you, it's, it's all the stuff that you go through. And uh, so he thinks about what he's going to miss uh, as a result of dying and leaving this world. And he said, I shall not see Yah, speaking of the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. And so he said, God, this is going to bring an end to my relationship with you as I know it now, the worship, the praise, the adoration that I'm able to give to you, the intimacy of relationship that we have experienced. Now, you have to understand concerning the Old Testament revelation of life after death versus the revelation that we have as Christians. They were two entirely different things. 
In the Old Testament, the description of what happened to an Old Testament saint at the point of death, they know they went into Sheol, they went into Hades, some kind of a waiting place. It wasn't soul sleep or anything like that. They were who they were, and uh, but they kind of went into this place waiting for the final judgment. That's all the revelation that they had. And so they didn't have the confidence that we have in Christ, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is something that we wouldn't say today. Lord, I'm going to lose my relationship with you, the ability to worship you, the ability to know you, to know you more deeply, to experience your presence. We know that when we die, we, to be absent from the bodies to go right into the presence of the Lord. But they didn't have that kind of revelation. See, why didn't God give them that kind of revelation in the Old Testament? Well, he didn't give it to them because... It, well, I like what Vance Havner spoke a long time ago. I'm going to butcher this, by the way. But a great old-time preacher now in heaven, and he talks about the fact that, that even why there isn't more revelation concerning heaven in the Bible than is even in the New Testament. And he said, it's kind of like uh, having a bowl of spinach in front of you at the dinner table and a cake at the end of the table. Uh, speaking about this life is kind of like eating spinach. And he said, if we knew more about heaven, knew more about that cake at the end of the table, it'd make it a lot harder for us to eat our spinach. And so there is that real, they, in the Old Testament, why tell people about something that wasn't going to be available to them fully until the coming of Christ? Christ comes and then now all of this revelation about what happens when we die, the glory of heaven, our relationship with God goes into, you know, warp speed and all of that. But they didn't have that that kind of understanding. He felt that, you know, basic, the, 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 his relationship with God is going to be somehow less than it was in life. I'm not going to be able to worship you and bless you the way that I have. And then he says further, I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the earth. And so once you've been diagnosed in this kind of a way or given that kind of a prognosis or something, I'll tell you, you look at the world a different way. You look at people a different way. You begin to think about who I'm going to miss, who, uh, you know, is, it, it, they're going to probably outlive you, and et cetera, et cetera. And this is all that's going on. He's thinking now specifically about the people that he loves, the ebb and the flow of life, people just watching them, even the people that you don't know, the fascination of all of it. And now this is going to be taken away from him. And he's processing all of this. He said, my lifespan is gone taken from me like a shepherd's tent. And he likens his uh, death coming to him so early, likens it to his body being uh, dismantled in the way, piece by piece, in the way that a shepherd uh, takes down his tent. And so probably this disease was operating progressively in his life and he was using, losing capacities uh, bit by bit. And then he complains, I have been cut off from my life like a weaver. He cuts me off, speaking of God, from the loom, from the day, from day until night, you make an end of me. And so you've got this great loom that is there. They make rugs. It's fascinating to watch the rugs be made on looms even today. And 
the horror that you would um, experience if there's this beautiful work of art, this beautiful rug that's being fashioned upon a loom, and it's just about to be finished, or maybe 60% finished. It's just going to be something that is fabulous. And, and uh, Hezekiah is saying, this kind of represents my life. And then suddenly somebody comes in with a knife right at the base of the loom and then cuts it off. And here is this... Uh, damaged and destroyed uh, rug. And and Hezekiah is saying, my life being cut off uh, so early, it's a a shame and and, and it's a terrible, terrible waste. This is all that, that he's processing internally. And then he said, I have considered until morning, like a lion, so he, that as God breaks all my bones from day until night, you make an end of me. So speaking of the pain of the disease that he was enduring, and especially through the night. And then uh, remembering here, after his healing, all of the crying and the mournful prayer that he lifted up to the Lord, like a crane or a swallow, so I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. And so thinking about all of the prayers that he had cried out uh, to the Lord, lamenting his his condition and desiring uh, to be healed. And then in verse 15, the song uh, kind of takes a different turn and, and he begins to praise God for his healing. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. And, and then, and this is beautiful as well. You don't have to wait until you get a terminal diagnosis on some kind of a disease or something uh, to learn from Hezekiah here. And uh, what he does... Uh, in in all of this, he's had this very very close brush with death, and uh, it changed him, and it'll do that, and so he begins to th- talk about the changes that this brought into his life. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me, and he himself has done it. He's healed me, and now as a result, I shall walk carefully all my years and the bitterness of my soul. In other words, he said, this brush with death makes me now want to live my life even more carefully and with an even greater sobriety that I use my remaining years uh, properly. That's always a good lesson learned. Oh Lord, by these things men live and in all these things is the life of my spirit and so you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it, is, uh, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. You have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for you, uh, hope for your truth. Again, the limitation of the understanding of eternity uh, in the Old Testament perspective. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known the tr- your truth to the children. And so he says, I've been filled with a fresh appreciation uh, for life. And then finally what he uh, has learned in all of it. Verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will 
Uh, We will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. So he makes this fresh commitment to uh, his spiritual life, his relationship with the Lord. God, I want to use the time that I have uh, left to go deeper in my relationship with you, to enjoy you in this life. It wasn't like, oh, wow, I've got 15 years left and I wonder what they're doing in Vegas tonight. Uh, he realized once you real, once that kind of news comes into your life, you love the Lord, you walk with the Lord, you say, man, I want to know everything that this relationship can be, this side of heaven, and then I want to enjoy heaven on the other side of it as well. And then Isaiah, in the midst of all of this, he had said, let them now take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, so he had some kind of a wound, again, maybe a melanoma, some kind of a skin cancer, maybe some other, something else that's like a cancer, and he shall recover. It is fascinating here that God gives him a miracle. He is healed as a miracle of God. Listen, all healing is a miracle of God. Uh, you, any person goes in and has a surgery and goes under the knife, that surgeon can't make you heal. Only God heals the human body. Only he has created it to heal. Only he is active to heal in a human life. So all healing comes uh, from God. And, uh, and God comes in, declares his healing. He's going to be healed. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And yet God incorporates some kind of measure of medicine, some, uh, something that's done by a man in the whole process. And I think that it's significant here. So often the body of Christ just gets crazy about God can only heal in this way or that way. It's, it's, if it's not a direct miracle where the person leaps up and throws their wheelchair to the side, that somehow God didn't do it. God can use medicine to heal. He can use surgery to heal. He can use anything he wants to heal. And so here's this combination of uh, the power and the gift of his Holy Spirit, a miracle of healing in Hezekiah's life, and yet God chooses to involve a little bit of medicine as well. I think just so we don't get crazy and go in one camp or the other and say, God doesn't heal, he doesn't do miracles anymore, it's all surgery and it's all healing. I say this to that, and then the other group comes along and says, no, it's all got to be a miracle, it's got to be something where they, you know, jump and throw the crutches away and then begin to dance. God couldn't use any of the rest of it for his purpose. It diminishes the power and the reputation of God. That's nonsense equally. And Hezekiah said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? And so all of this, uh, that miracle that was given to him as a sign, again, he didn't have no medical equipment and all of that. And God graciously said, I'll do this and you'll know that you're healed. Then in chapter 39, Hezekiah makes the biggest blunder in his life and in his ministry. He falters. It's interesting that there were eight kings out of all of the kings uh, that ever ruled over uh, undivided Israel, beginning with Saul and then on to David, and then the kings that ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. There were many, many, many kings, that dozens of kings that ruled. Only eight kings were ever spoken of as having done that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah was one of those kings. The interesting thing about all eight of those kings is every one of them failed. Every one of them failed in one way or another, except one. And the one who didn't is virtually completely unknown in the Bible. 
Nobody knows his name compared to the other kings. And why he didn't fail is fascinating. But that's another story. So here's Hezekiah. He takes and he, and he really blunders here. It is important and it's a great lesson in ministry that we are most vulnerable uh, to spiritual attack, successful spiritual attack, immediately following after some after God has used us in some great way or that God has blessed us in some great way. For some reason, that just gets us lifted up in pride, even though God did all of it, and we then become vulnerable to falling prey to that pride. And that's exactly what happens to Hezekiah. He's been the recipient of a great miracle, the destruction of the Assyrian army, receiving this healing into his life. And now in his pride, uh, he stumbles at the very end. And at that time, Merodach Baladan, the uh, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, he sent letters and a present to Hezekiah for, here's the reason, He heard that he had been sick and recovered. So Babylon is at this particular point in time. Uh, They are, uh, this is before the defeat of Assyria. They are not the world ruling empire. They will follow Assyria, but they're just kind of a large colony. They're a significant nation, but not what they will become. They hear that this king, who they would hope would one day become an ally of them, has been through all of this. And so just as a, 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 um, a courtesy to him, uh, to express their uh, feelings uh, toward him, they send a gift and uh, uh, letters, a message to him, just saying, we're so glad to hear that you were sick and that you've recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them. This was very flattering to him. And so what he did, and here's the mistake. He showed them the house of his treasures. So he's going to show them all of the riches that are in Jerusalem. That's like getting an email uh, from some cafe in Nigeria that's asking for your bank account number and social security number because... um, you have won $175 million and you just need to send $5,000 in order to claim that, you know. So he's going to show all the riches of Jerusalem uh, to a people that uh, he shouldn't be doing that. They don't love him that much. <laughs> At least they're, um, uh, those that will come from them won't. So Hezekiah, flattered by all of this, he then gives them a tour of all in Jerusalem, all of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all his armory, all that is found was found among his treasures. There is nothing in his house or in all his dominion, not only in his own palace, but in all of Jerusalem that Hezekiah did not show them. And so he's showing off, basically. And and in verse 2, it's very fascinating. And more than that, it's important to recognize that the word his is repeated five times. He's lifted up in pride. And here he is where um, all of this wealth now, all of the blessings, the glory of Jerusalem, somehow he views that as belonging to him. 
and not belonging to God. He, is, he may know it inside, but he's taking credit for it. He's giving them a tour, and then, and then he's receiving the glory from them for the beauty and all of the wealth of Jerusalem, rather than saying, listen, none of this belongs to me at all. If it were just me without God, I'd have thrown all of this away and a thousand times more. This belongs to God. We have it because he's gracious. Isn't he wonderful? Wouldn't you like to receive him into your heart right now? So that would have been the proper response. But he doesn't do that. He's going to take the glory. Look at all of this. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, now I see why God spared you. Like, ooh. Then Isaiah, the prophet, went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And where did they come from? Uh-oh. And so Hezekiah said, Well, they came to me from a car far country. Don't be telling me that these people are close by and they're a danger to us or anything. They came from a long way away, all the way from Babylon. And then Isaiah said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. Again, my And there is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day, Isaiah, didn't belong to you. It's been an accumulation of God through your people for ages that your fathers have communicated until this day that all of it shall be carried one day to Babylon and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now this is an amazing prophecy and it's the first prophecy that comes now to Judah, to Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, that they will ultimately be conquered, not by Assyria, but by Babylon. It's an amazing prophecy, only God could make a prophecy like this because only he knows the future the way that he knows the future. In fact, he doesn't know the future because he's never in the future. He's always in the present tense. It's a, listen, it'll just blow your mind to try and think about all of this. But he knows our futures. And so here he looks at all of this and, and God declares the fact that one day Babylon is going to come in and they're going to strip you of all of your wealth. Again, Babylon was just, it was a significant nation, but it was under the dominion of Assyria at that time. No one could have believed this to be true at all unless God declared it to be true. And of course, it would ultimately come to pass as all of God's promises do. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, they're not only going to strip the wealth in terms of material wealth, but the wealth of your human resources, your people, your brightest, your best. Daniel and uh, the book of Daniel gives us great insight into all of this. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. And so sometimes... People look at that and they kind of say, well, you know, here's Hezekiah and he's kind of getting, falling apart here in terms of his spirituality and just saying, well, bring it on. No big deal. At least it's not going to happen in my lifetime. The fact of the matter is we get a little uh, more insight into all of this in a parallel account in Second Corinthians chapter 32. And uh, what Hezekiah is actually 
uh, communicating to Isaiah here is his submission, his humble submission to God's decree here. Let me read one verse to you out of Second Corinthians chapter 32. As a result of this, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. He recognized it. And he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So he realized that was a test from God to see who he would give the glory to, whether take it to himself or give the God, God the glory. He realized he failed it. He humbly looked and said, all right, uh, uh, deserving of this, and so I'm accepting of it uh, as well. And then uh, I don't know that any of us, unless you are uh, super, super, super spiritual, and I don't doubt that uh, some of you are, but I think that most of us would be relieved to think and say, well, all right, um, God is going to do it, and If I'm going to be honest, I'm glad it's not going to happen while I'm alive. And uh, that was his communication here uh, uh, to Isaiah. In chapter 40, uh, the chapter 40, as we noticed this morning, the book of, of Isaiah takes a very, very dramatic turn. So it begins the second major division of the book, chapters 1 through 39, constituting a message of judgment and condemnation by God against Judah because of their sin and their rebellion and uh, warning them of the judgment that would come uh, upon them. And then ultimately, about a hundred years after these prophecies of Isaiah, the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated, and uh, the vast majority of the population of Jerusalem and Judea were taken uh, into uh, Babylon as, as captives and as slaves, and they were there for 70 years, as God declared that they would, all as a consequence of their sin. In chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah writes this section of the book not supremely to his contemporaries, not to the people that are alive at the time that he is speaking uh, these prophecies. He is declaring these prophecies for the sake of the Jews who would ultimately return from Babylon to Israel 150 years or so in the future. And so these messages are a message of great comfort great encouragement to the children of Israel as they sit in Babylon bearing the consequences of their sin, now broken, now humbled, now repentant, that yes, God has a future and he has a hope for you. And as they're thinking about the day coming where God is going to release them to return from Babylon to their homeland, to Israel, they face this very long, difficult journey across that wilderness all of the hardship that they're going to be facing and returning to the land flowing with milk and honey, so to speak. And here is an encouragement to them as they faced uh, all of that. This section of Isaiah now, uh, all of it has been filled with passages that speak to Jesus as the Christ. But this section of Isaiah is especially filled with passages that speak about Jesus, uh, prophesy of him and uh, scriptures that were fulfilled by him because in the context is interesting and, and completely appropriate 
Because when a person finally, as these children of God did, finally becomes sick of a life of sin and unholiness, they long for forgiveness, they long for a changed life, they long to be restored, they long for a hope concerning their future, the news of Jesus is the greatest news that that person could ever hear. And so this whole section is just full of uh, Jesus. I think it's important, too, to realize uh, some of you have heard this, no doubt, but others of you perhaps haven't. And I want everybody uh, that sits under my pastoral care to have it in your thinker as you uh, enjoy in the future reading and studying the book of Isaiah for yourself. The book of Isaiah has been called the miniature Bible because it's made up of 66 chapters, um, even as the Bible is made up of 66 books. 39 chapters making up the Old Testament, 39 books making up uh, the Old uh, Testament, uh, 27 uh, books making up the New Testament. Even as in the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters speak a message of judgment against a rebellious people. And then uh, the final 27 chapters are uh, passages that emphasize uh, the grace of God And so it is that little Bible in the sense that it breaks up in that kind of, of a division. We know that the chapters and verses were added to the Bible. They're not a part of God's inspiration in the Bible. They were added for convenience so that we could say, let's turn now tonight to the book of Isaiah chapter 38. And then we were able to turn right there rather than unrolling our scrolls and trying to find chapter 38 in the gigantic scroll of Isaiah. So we like all of that, the chapters, the verses. They're not in inspired, but I think that um, the comparison is still interesting, and I think it's helpful for encapsulating in our minds. Yes, the first half of the book is like the Old Testament judgment. The second half of the book speaks of God's grace. So, of course, who is going to be the star of that section of the book uh, but Jesus himself? And it's nice to know that, again, in our own personal devotion and reading of the book of Isaiah and our own study of it as well. So here begins this great section of comfort and encouragement. And the Lord speaks now to these folks that are in Babylon. Uh, they've thrown everything away as a result of their sin and their rebellion and their idolatry. And God now comforts them. And he says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. It's a wonderful thing about the Lord. It's amazing how strong he can be in his discipline and in his chastening. You ever been in the doghouse with him? Chirp, chirp, chirp. I'm hearing crickets. I'm in a room of perfect people. You ever been in the doghouse with God? I mean, where we really let you know you're in trouble. And, and I mean, he can get in your face and almost have you melt in his presence. Because, wow, he means business. And, you know, he needs to be that kind of a heavenly father. And he will be that in our lives as we need it. But the moment we're repentant, 
the moment we're humbled by it and we confess our sin and we turn from it and now he's got our attention and yes, I'm going to obey you here on this and I'm going to learn the lesson here and and from this situation, he immediately causes his comfort to flow into our lives as strongly as his chastening did at the beginning. It's a marvel, really. The balance of it. How he keeps people like you and me in line. And he disciplines us and he chastens us so that we might be partakers of his holiness. And he pulls us on the choke chain and he, yet he keeps us moving forward. And yet he never lets us quite fall into condemnation or the idea that God is through with us. He comes right along with comfort. Only God could do it to the, the majestic detail with which he does it. The fact that you and I are here tonight and we love him and we worshiped him in the way that we did speaks to the incredible balance with which he wields these two things. His chastening, his rebuke, necessary, yes, but then followed up in just the right moment so that we don't lose heart with his comfort and news of, again, a future, a hope that he's not done with us. And that's exactly what he's desiring to do to the southern kingdom of Judah and to the, or rather to those that are in the bondage and in captivity. And he lets them know that they can be comforted, that their warfare is over, their captivity is, is done, that season of captivity is over, that her iniquity is pardoned. God says to them and to us in such a season in our life, you've been forgiven. And then, for so she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. In other words, God hasn't forsaken you. Uh, He has good things ahead for you. Now, when he talks about the fact that she had received from the Lord's hand double for her sins, it doesn't mean that God got really upset, lost his cool, and gave them twice the spanking they deserved. Uh, God never loses his cool. And so it doesn't mean that God judged them uh, twice as hard as they deserved for their sin. In the Old Testament law, when a person would deliberately commit a sin, in the law of Moses, they were to repay double for that sin. God differentiated between sin that was deliberate and the sacrifice that needed to be made and sin that was accidental unintentional and the sacrifice that needed to be made. And when a sin was deliberate, the sacrifice that was required was double. Their sin against God was deliberate. And so God said, now the sacrifice that will be required, the punishment that will be required will be double. And so that's what he's speaking of here in the fact that she received double for all of her sin. And then God goes on to declare that his plan, in other words, he's not through with uh, the Jewish people. He's not through with them. They're going to come back uh, into the land. And so his purposes for them uh, remain. Uh, They still, again, have a Messiah to bring into human history. And so uh, he goes on to declare the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every mountain shall be exalted and every, uh, or every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight 
and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And the glory of the Lord that he's talking about here is the coming of Messiah, of Jesus. And we beheld uh, his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth, John wrote in his, the first chapter of, of his gospel. And so here is this passage where uh, when uh, Paul, again, when he looked at this a little bit this morning, when he wrote concerning the Jews there and, and writing to the church at Rome in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, he said that the Jews really had two great advantages in terms of uh, their, uh, their place in human history, the blessing that they would bring to all of the world. And number one, the single great distinction concerning the Jews is that God has provided the world with the word of God, the scriptures, uh, in large part through the Jewish nation, the Old Testament in its entirety. Only Luke is the author of, as a Gentile of, uh, 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 in, in the New Testament. And second, and, and supremely, God wanted to bless the whole world through the Jews uh, by bringing a Savior into the world through their bloodline. But both of those gifts of God to man through the Jewish people, they had been put in uh, jeopardy by the sin of this nation. And here Isaiah reassures them that God's spiritual and prophetic purposes for uh, the nation remained. This prophecy, of course, was uh, fulfilled by John the Baptist as he, as a Jew, uh, was used by God to prepare the world spiritually for the coming uh, of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. This imagery is something that would have been very, very familiar in the ancient world. Uh, in the ancient world, if a king was going to make a visit to some isolated village or some other city, they would send out the work crews and fix any potholes in the roads and anything that was dangerous. And they would, you know, lower the valleys to make it as flat as possible. They would raise the low spots so that the king could make a, a straight entry as possible uh, into the city. I've seen it even in India. One time we were in India and there were all of these workers on the road, men on the side of the road, 50 cents a day, I think they earned at the time. And they were breaking stones with hammers and then putting them in the potholes within the roads. And we asked what they were doing. And they said some great dignitary was coming in a couple of weeks and they wanted to have the road prepared to be as good as it could uh, for this dignitary. And that's what it's speaking about. And here, John the Baptist comes later on in fulfillment of all of this, not to physically prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of Messiah, but spiritually and uh, speaking to them uh, of the fact that the king is coming and, and uh, the Messiah is coming and here's how your heart needs to be uncluttered and, and to have so that he can have this straight path and smooth path into your heart to establish his throne there, etc., etc. And John did that as he pointed people uh, to Jesus. They came to John and recorded in John's gospel, chapter 1, and they asked him, who are you? And he confessed. He understood they were asking him whether he was the Messiah or not. He's a quite a, a dramatic human being, so they thought maybe he's the Messiah. 
And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. They said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those that sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they, uh, calling himself the fulfillment of this passage, and then those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him and they said, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, or the prophet? And John answered and said, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you who you do not know. And it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. In other words, I'm just a guy preparing the way for the real king. And of course, one of the most famous things that John the Baptist ever said, he spoke to his disciples and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, pointing them to Jesus, who takes away the sin of the World, And then in verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? And here's what you should cry. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers, and the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands for uh, ever. And so, again, this is speaking about uh, God's plans. The reason that the nation of Israel survived the Babylonian captivity, they were coming back into the land, was not because of their great strength or their great faithfulness. Uh, they were like a flower that was, you know, blooming and looking beautiful one day or the grass looking green one day, and then the heat spell comes in and all of it withers. They failed at the time uh, of testing. The reason, again, they had a future, they had a hope. They had purposes out in front of them. They had survived the Babylonian captivity and were coming back into the land was for one reason alone. The word of our God stands forever. Probably Isaiah has a little bit in mind also here in speaking about the grass uh, withering and the flower fading and all, thinking about Assyria, thinking about Babylon uh, as well. It it looked as if these great empires were going to uh, uh, overwhelm all of the promises that God had given to his people, render them all null and void. And, uh, And yet, as we've seen in history, they just faded away like so much vegetation in a hot Central Valley summer. It's coming, by the way, if the Lord tarries. Uh, Don't be fooled by the cold. And uh, so the Lord was saying, here they are, they're gone, and the word of God uh, stands. You ever been in a situation where um, the word of God didn't end up having the final say in your life? I'll tell you, I haven't. It always does. I think it's wonderful to realize um, as these bodies that we uh, possess, as they grow uh, and go from... Uh, green grass and the loveliness of the flower of the field to withered and fading. And uh, it is inevitable for every one of us, if the Lord tarries, that God promises to that he, that he will be as faithful to his promises to us in our old age as he was to us in our youth. I remember the first time I was a much younger man when I heard an older man say, listen, 
as it, I learned later that it was like a famous saying, growing old isn't for sissies. And now I embrace it. It's my, I, I say it every morning as I get up out of the bed. Every movement involves a groan and a cry and an anguish that's only silenced by a cup of tea in my quiet time. But to realize that all of that is going on and yet, and that God, and one of the things that's being spoken in the passage is that he will be as faithful to us in our old age as he is in, uh, and was in our uh, in our youth and to believe in that and to trust in that. The flip side of it, of course, is glorious. Paul brings it out and he said, the outward man is perishing and it is, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. As bad as all of this gets, the depth of relationship knowing him, the longer the history that we have with him and that inward man, that spiritual man looks like Samson on the inside, no matter what we look like on the outside. And that's just the way uh, that the uh, Lord does things. And so there's the balance of it. God brings glory into every season. Uh, just a few more verses here before we stop tonight. We won't go through the whole chapter. I'm infusing hope into some of your hearts. He said... O Zion, speaking to Jerusalem, he calls on Jerusalem to now announce to all of the other cities of Israel that God is coming back to Israel, that the Lord is returning and he's going to inhabit uh, Jerusalem. He's going to bless it with the fullness of his presence. And so when you've been away from God, when you've been backslidden in the way that Judah was, your first concern is, does God have a future for me? Does God still have a plan? Uh, for my life? Is he still going uh, to use me? Does he still want me? Does he still love me? And then once that, an that question gets answered and, and uh, solved and taken care of in our lives, then the great question is, will I ever know his presence like I once did? Will I ever have that feeling in prayer again? Will I ever know what a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or a prophecy is once again? The way that he used me in the past Will I ever know what that feeling is like uh, again? And so God is answering that concern of his people here in this. Yes, God is going to return to Israel. He is going to come in the fullness of his presence. It isn't going to be him bringing you back into the land. Now you're in the doghouse. You'll never experience his, his presence or intimacy with him ever again. And just so God can kind of rub your nose in, in your failure. That's not what God does. So he announces God is coming. He's coming back. He's going to bless us with his presence once again. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up to the high, into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. Into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. Now as he calls the city to let all of the other cities know. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. What a wonderful and needed encouragement that was. God is coming. He's coming back. I'm going to experience this with him once again. Let me say one thing, though, that's important to know. Sometimes when a person will return from a backslidden condition, um, I do, it's, it's sovereign. God does it however he wants. But I think that if a person backslides uh, one time and comes back to the Lord, 
Uh, most often they're surprised at how quickly God then restores intimacy back into their life and they pick things up right where they left off, so to speak. But sometimes if a person makes a habit of backsliding, there can uh, come this experience where you return back to the Lord now and then now it doesn't come back so easy. And I remember talking with a man years ago and I have heard from many, many people through the years the same story. And he said, you know, this last time where I left the Lord and I went out and did what I did and I came back and he said, it wasn't so easy this time. It had been easy the other times. And this time the songs weren't so easy to sing. And the prayer life didn't come back so immediately. And the word of God didn't explode into life overnight again for me again. And he said, I had to continue on that path for a while. And he said, but I recognized that for me, because I was making backsliding a pattern in my life, that I was taking it for granted and the Lord was warning me not to take it for granted. So he said this last time, the Lord forced me to wait quite a while for these things to return so that I wouldn't take them for granted. But then he said, they have returned, and it is glorious what I have with the Lord once again. So it comes, maybe not immediately, but it does come. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. In other words, he's coming back to Judah. There was a remnant of Jews still in the land. They had been faithful to God, a small number of them, for the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, continued to walk with God. They loved God. God said, I'm coming to you with my presence. I'm coming to you with a strong arm to bless you. And then, so he, it speaks of his power and his might with which he's coming. And then he's likened unto a shepherd in verse 11. And he, that is the Lord, shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And here he is speaking about how he is going to bring all of his saints from Babylon and bring them back into the land and he will carry them in his arms, the greatness of his heart and his love for his people and returning them to the land. And so the two great pictures of his return with all of his presence here, his strength, but also his love and, uh, and, uh, and, his, uh, and his heart and his tender care. Let's stand together and we'll pray.